Hello and welcome to the Mayday Podcast. I'm Luca. And I'm Anna. And today is our second and final episode exploring the myth of the abominable snowman, or the Yeti. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today, the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Some content warnings for this episode. There will be mentions of death, racism and human remains. So for today, seeing as the pochar for our last episode was a mistake, um, <laughs> but which I mean I couldn't make it properly and it just kind of tasted like milky tea. Today we're going for what some would say is a more traditional mountaineer's beverage, coffee with alcohol in it. Luke is not happy about this. I don't drink coffee and I'm not a particular fan of the whiskey that you put in this particular <laughs> coffee, so... It's every... just an unpleasant combination for me personally, but... Yeah. On every level, it's just been made terrible for you. Yeah. But yet again, that is where I thrive, yeah. so... <laughs> this is a combination of some quite nice coffee from a nice coffee place that was made in my little pot on the stove, and a whiskey that's called Cutty Sark Whiskey, which, as Lucas mentioned, is not his favourite... I would say it's not my favourite either, but I like I like it. It's fine, but it's just a kind of blended Scotch whiskey, so you know it's nothing nothing exciting. If you would like to suffer along with me, feel free to um, try some of your own, I guess. <laughs> and please make it black coffee. Yeah. Because it is just black coffee with whiskey in it, and I did not measure the whiskey, so the amount it's a surprise. <laughs> I literally have like a measuring shot glass. Why do you never, never measure? <laughs> because of why would I ever measure out shots? <laughs> That's where the fun is. <laughs> this smells so intense. In fact, like if if anyone wants to make it, don't you don't even need to drink it. Just make it and smell it. Like, <laughs> and then you'll know my pain. <laughs> oh God, I I don't want to. Anna. <laughs> I'll go first. All right. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Fine. It's actually like pretty chill. I don't believe you. I believe you're trying to trick me into drinking <laughs> this. I mean, don't drink it in one go, but it was fine. Yeah, it's just, just coffee and whiskey. It's not good. I feel it burning down my throat, but like more than whiskey usually does. And I feel like that's a mix of the coffee and mm. it. So hear me out. Like you're freezing on the side of a mountain. This tastes like paradise. We are comfortable in our urban apartment. It's bad. It's real bad. <laughs> it's real bad. Yeah, I feel like when you're on a mountain and, A, obviously you need coffee desperately to stay awake because you're exhausted and depending on where you are on Everest, you are possibly like living under extreme pressure conditions and you're just, your body's having a bad time. So you want that coffee to keep you awake and you want that whiskey to keep you warm and maybe a little bit numb to things that are happening around you. So it makes sense as a beverage. In that circumstance <laughs> and none other, you're staving off a Yeti. You've got one hand on your sharpened stick and the other on your flask filled with coffee and whiskey, and that's what's keeping you upright. Yeah. I mean, maybe you even throw it at the Yeti to get it a little bit, like, messed up. It would certainly mess up the Yeti. Yeah. Its smell alone would be like, ah, yeah. what's this? I'm getting out of here. Alternatively, maybe you're just like, chilling on a rock and the yeti just comes up and he takes a seat beside you and you just share a glass of that abomination this is my dream 
This is genuinely what I want in life. Yeah. <laughs> if I wasn't asthmatic and had tiny lungs, I would be <laughs> up in the Himalayas doing it right now. Mm-hmm. If I also had like $60,000, I would be doing that. But also, like, I know you and you wouldn't do that because you know it's like immoral. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. No one needs to hear my opinions on commercial mountaineering, uh, Himalayan mountaineering, but I don't think it's good. <laughs> Maybe I do this like on a different mountain, <laughs> like a chill yes. one. So before we recap our previous episode, thoughts on that drink versus the pocha, which would you prefer? Butter tea or coffee I mean- whiskey? Okay, so I like tea, and even though, like, you did not make the pocha, like, legitimately, (laughs) it is superior because it did just taste like a sweet tea, right? Yep. Whereas this is just, like, actively hedonistic. (laughs) I I just, there was no redeeming qualities for me personally. Maybe if someone liked coffee, then, like, that would be great, but... I like coffee. I I have had Irish coffees before, but this one was made intentionally terrible because we added no milk or sugar but you know what slaps coffee with baileys that yeah. is delicious see i can imagine that that would slap i mean maybe if we add some milk and sugar to this it'll taste like palatable yeah but it was more fun to make it in a way that's <laughs> unpleasant and also probably more realistic to what people on mountains are drinking they've got a hunk of snow from outside uh, uh some some coffee grounds probably the ones that they used the day before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably instant these days, let's be honest. Oh, yeah, true, true, true. Yeah. Uh, and they've got just a flask of whiskey. It does the job. Yeah. But so, yes, the pocha was superior, but I don't think that that was like a credit to the drink or your skill at making it purely because tea is superior. Okay, rude, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now that Luca has broken my heart, we'll begin our <laughs> recap. <laughs> I stand by it. All right, so in our previous episode, we did a little bit of background on a bit of stuff about Everest, information about the etymology of the Yeti and other names for it, and some connections to folklore. We talked a little bit about very early mountaineering, how the names developed in the 20s and onwards, and then we moved into the Nazis (laughs) and mountaineering in the 30s. And I think we ended on the story from World War II from Mr. Swavimir Rawitz. Mr. I definitely did not walk across the uh, Asian continent. (laughs) (laughs) He sure did say he did that. At least a nice, maybe nice old man got some money and fame in his later years. I hope his ghost rider was paid well. I hope so too. They really really did the work there. I mean, they definitely put in that Yeti bit. Did... Does he stand by the story or has he, I, I, I don't recall this from the last episode. Does he stand by it or has he been like, yeah, it was fake? Swavimir? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. He's just like, yeah, this absolutely happened to me. Yeah, no, he never, he never said otherwise. Because like, I do feel bad if I'm insulting this old man and he actually did survive this har- harrowing journey. I mean, we'll never know for sure, but obviously it's highly likely that it didn't happen because there was a... I think evidence of some Soviet documents that might show that he was taken to a refugee camp in Iran. So, like, he probably didn't. He was actually just, like, dropped off there by... Yeah, that's yeah. hilarious. So after the amnesty between Poland and USSR in 42. So right. he was probably just dropped off at a refugee camp. But <laughs> he got some money out of this by publishing this book in, like, the 50s. So good for him, I guess. And then he died in 2004. So this is, like, he died insisting this was true. Damn. 
Anyway, sorry, we did talk about him last episode. I just forgot some of the details. Yes, <laughs> we we ended on 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 uh, that guy. His wild story. Yeah. And I ended with mentioning that one of the people who vocally disputed his supposed trek was an English mountaineer named Eric Shipton. And I do believe we mentioned that he's also brought to the world one of the most famous pieces of Yeti evidence. So I'm going to come to him in a moment. But very quickly, we're going to talk first about his longtime friend and climbing companion, another English mountaineer named Bill Tillman. Bill. Billiam. Billiam Tillian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Actually, it's Baniel. Baniel. <laughs> Actually, it's Biljamin. <laughs> Anyway, Billiam, yeah. <laughs> Billiam. So, <laughs> so Bill led the 1938 expedition to Everest, which Shipman was also part of. Alongside them was Frank Smythe, who we mentioned in the last episode. So he was the botanist who did see supposed Yeti footprints and went to a cave, but he didn't believe them. And mm. his account of this all was published in his book, The Valley of the Flowers. But he didn't obviously they? said he didn't believe it, but people just quote it with that bit cut off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they miss out on the part where he's like, yeah, this was a bear. Yeah. <laughs> so these three men, all on the same expedition. Prior to the expedition, the three of them had argued in newspapers over Smythe's reports that the Yeti was just a bear. So he'd obviously published already that the Yeti was a bear in his book and it'd been mentioned in the newspapers. And it did briefly cause a little bit of, you know, excitement. And both Tillman and Shipman had written into the newspaper under various pen names defending the existence of the abominable snowman. Okay, hilarious. Yeah, incredible. So they claimed to have both found footprints themselves, which was actually not untrue because they had previously mentioned finding footprints on other expeditions. Whether they believed them or not is out of the question. They were clearly enjoying themselves by making fun of this, like, serious scientist. And that was ongoing throughout their expedition. There was this kind of not tension necessarily but like maybe a bit of sort of tongue-in-cheek mm. um attitude towards the yeti from the two of them because he was so like making himself like posturing this very like s- logical scientific approach to it where they were kind of like yeah the yeti's real <laughs> the yeti's real and he's my friend <laughs> so it should also be noted that one of the sherpas on this expedition was a 24 year old man named tenzing norgay Hey. Yeah. So he, unlike the rest of the people on the expedition, would actually get to summit Everest 15 years later with Edmund Hillary in 1953. So Tenzing is also here. It's just all the guys. Yeah. <laughs> all the boys, one expedition, 1938. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So we really do have all the folks. Yeah. So Shipton, Tillman, Smythe. Tillman, as I said, is in charge. And on a previous expedition the year before, he'd also encountered some footprints. So he's going into this with a lot of mountaineering experience already, but also possible experience with yetis or the proof of them, supposedly. Mm. He describes the finding of these footprints as follows. The Sherpas judged them to belong to the smaller type of snowman or yeti, as they call them, of which there are apparently two varieties the smaller, whose spore we were following, which feeds on men, while his larger brother confines himself to a diet of yaks. My remark that no one had been here for 30 years and that he must be devilishly hungry did not amuse the Sherpas as much as I expected. The jest was considered ill-timed, as it perhaps was, the three of us standing forlorn and alone in a great expanse of snow, looking at the strange tracks like so many Robinson Crusoes. So this was 1937 that mm-hmm. you saw that. So you can kind of tell from his general demeanor that he's a little bit of a... Like, jokester. 
Yeah, but obviously there's like also a, a slight element here of like being quite dismissive of the Sherpas and their Absolutely. belief systems. Like, yeah, which is pretty consistent across all of these mountaineers. I mean, we had the same thing with Smythe. We had that with Ernst Schaefer and the fact that he was actually fabricating footprints in front of the tents of his guides because mm. these people kind of suck. Nazis more so than others, but, you know, all of them being a little bit. A little bit racist. A lot bit racist. A lot bit racist. I'd say. Yeah, a lot bit racist. Mm. So while on the 1938 expeditions, this is the year after he saw some footprints, the group is forced to take refuge during bad weather in the Rongbuk Monastery near the northern base of Everest. They'd noticed that a nearby monument to some deceased climbers had been destroyed, and when they asked the lamas, they were told that it had been done by the abominable snowmen, several of which supposedly lived in the area. So Tillman also mentions that while separated from the main expedition, he'd actually run into Ernest Schaefer's expedition. So because that's also happening in 1938. Yeah. And he'd encouraged them to investigate the snowman mystery, apparently. So they had like a drink by a fire and he was like, hey, you guys should take this seriously. Which, again, from his point of view, probably sort of said a bit jokingly. But, you know, let's not forget the group that he was talking to. Yikes. Yeah. 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 So in his book of the expedition, Tillman analyzes the Yeti phenomenon quite at length. So he records a lot of the evidence that's been found and he provides some alternatives. He believes maybe hermits could be an explanation for the Yeti phenomenon because there's no death penalty supposedly in Tibet at the time and people who commit crimes are just exiled. I don't know how truthful that is. That's just what he says in his book. Oh, yeah. So he could possibly be making up just the history. Yeah, it could entirely be true, but I just want to say I haven't actually like verified that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. his tone in the book is quite tongue-in-cheek at times but he does conclude by arguing for an open mind and he says everything falls upon the interpretation of footprints and if fingerprints can hang a man as they frequently do surely footprints may be allowed to establish the existence of one that is such an interesting way to look at it also horrifying with the fingerprints hanging a man thing. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, I guess that's just how justice systems work in places that allow capital punishment. Yes, this is true. So I'm like a little bit, uh, it, it's interesting right here, right? Because this is obviously like the primary intersection between the Sherpa belief in their version of the Yeti, like mm -hmm. the, the original version, and the like Western idea of like the big white, haired nary man yeah. who traipses around in the snow mm -hmm. and who also is in like North America for some reason. Like it, it's, it's interesting to me because like obviously like we're seeing that intersection of those two things and it's obviously complicated because as much as I will happily say the Yeti does not exist in this particular circumstance obviously you've got Sherpa guides who are like extremely skilled mm -hmm. and extremely knowledgeable in the area being like yeah that's a that's a Yeti footprint. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, so, and llamas at this monastery saying, yeah, there's a bunch that live in the area. That's what destroyed that can over there. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, I mean, if anything, this is the, this is the thing that's given me more pause than anything else. <laughs> I will say it's one of those things where we are going through so many degrees of possible mistranslation or misunderstanding. Mm. So we are obviously everything that we have at the moment is from the point of view and it's from sources that are written by Europeans. Mm. Mm. And their understanding of what Nepali and Tibetan people believe, like we can't, we can't account for how accurate it is, how good their translating is, whether or not the people speaking to them may also be sometimes making fun of them. Yeah. Or 
or sometimes they might be saying something very seriously because obviously we have stories of them being quite like afraid or nervous about things as well. So it's a very complicated sort of history and it's hard to say whether or not any specific instance of a European mountaineer being like, we saw these things, my porters believe it's this, is actually like the porters being very serious and afraid and wanting him to take it seriously or if they're kind of making fun of him because they know that Westerners are a bit obsessed with this or, you know, like there's so many yeah, levels. Yeah. And also like, as we've said before, like the words for it change and the translation of it is often quite wrong. So mm. like, what exactly are they talking about? Are they talking about the creatures that they believe in of which we know there are several? Cause as I mentioned in the previous episode, there's like at least three possible kinds mm. of Yeti or Yeti like creature. So yeah, it, it's just sort of a bit complicated because there's so many, yeah. li- like, we can't really be sure what any, particularly any individual Nepali or Tibetan person believed in because we aren't hearing their actual point of view. Yeah, yeah. It's going through several layers of mistranslation and miscommunication. Yeah. And also we're often getting this information from published books by mountaineers. So they've also gone through an editing process. Whoever is doing the editing at their usually London-based publishing houses is going to highlight things that will make the book sell. And at the moment, the idea of the Yeti or Abominable Snowman is popular so there's going to be more focus on it than there necessarily was in their actual experience, you know? Mm, mm, mm-hmm. Again, so many different things impacting this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Because from my perspective, I like just don't want to be racist and mm. just dismiss an idea just because I'm like that stupid. If that's like a legitimate thing. But obviously it, it definitely sounds like there's a strong possibility that these people could have also been like, yeah, the bears destroyed that thing over there. And they were like, oh. <gasps> They said the Yeti word. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly, exactly. And I think more than anything, we're just, we are ourselves in these episodes tracking the creation of the Western concept of the Yeti, Mm. which is a created thing, which is an unreal phenomenon because we're sort of distinguishing between that and local actual beliefs Mm. about a Yeti-like creature. Mm. So when when we're charting like the Western idea of it, I think it's fair to recognise when these mountaineers are either being disrespectful or talking about it in a way that's intentionally joking to make fun of one another, like Tillman and Shipton sometimes making fun of Smythe and being like, yeah, it's totally real. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they're saying it possibly to sell whatever book that they're writing or to raise money for expeditions because it's a sort of hot topic. Mm. And some people genuinely are like, oh, wow, what if there's some kind of giant creature, whether it's an ape or not, living in these mountains and will we find it? Because, you know, this is an area that's relatively unexplored from some angles and it's, you know, new to people. So there's so many levels to it all. It's just something worth keeping in mind. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that all being said about our buddy Tillman, we now come to Shipton himself. So Eric Shipton was an experienced and very well-respected mountaineer who had climbed mountains around the world with Tillman. So I think they met originally like when they were much younger in Kenya from memory. So they, by this point, already climbed a lot and Shipton had been involved in multiple Everest expeditions throughout the 1930s. We flash forward to 1951 because obviously they were on the expedition in 38. Then the war hits, people aren't climbing Everest for a while. Mm. And then we come to the 50s when mountaineering kind of gets popular again. Mm. And 51 is a really important year for British mountaineering because we have the British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition, which Shipton leads. And the aim of this expedition is to explore different climbing routes on the Nepalese side of the mountain because Nepal has just opened up 
and Tibet is starting to close because of China doing some nefarious things in in Tibet. Mm -hmm. So this expedition, exploring their police site, actually does end up choosing the path which the 1953 expedition will go on. And of course, as we have mentioned in the last episode, the 1953 expedition is the one that actually manages to summit Everest. So Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary make it to the top on a British-led expedition, though neither of them are British themselves, of course. Mm. So this expedition is very important, 1951. And Edmund Hillary is actually present on it as well. So it's led by Shipton, but this is Hillary's first expedition on Everest. Um, It might seem blatantly obvious, but obviously like the lack of expeditions between 37 and 51 was just the war. There was nothing else preventing, like other than obviously Ernst was doing his Nazi stuff. Yeah. But otherwise. 38 is the last major year in the 30s. Yeah. And then after that is the war. A lot of the people involved in mountaineering in that period actually do end up taking war jobs in the region. So I think from memory Shipton actually worked for like British intelligence or something in that area. I don't know if necessarily intelligence might have been the colonial government, but a lot of people who were known for mountaineering in that area obviously had expertise there, so they ended up working for colonial governments Mm. in Tibet, Nepal, India area Mm, generally. mm. Yeah. But, yeah, they don't really mount a major expedition again until 51. Mm. This is the next major British expedition. As an aside, Shipton wasn't asked to lead the 1953 expedition, despite how successful the 1951 expedition was. And that's because he was known to favour smaller and cheaper climbing parties. He thought it was a more effective way of of mountaineering. And the 1953 expedition was like on a massive scale. So the people running it were like, no, we don't want this guy who wants small, cheap expeditions. We want someone who will be, who will enjoy all the money we're going to pour into this. Yeah, yeah. And that's like a big deal for him when he doesn't get that job. But that is yet to come. Mm. On the 1951 expedition, the party is split into several smaller groups, with Shipton accompanied by his long-standing Sherpa guide, San Tensing, and their doctor, Michael Ward, who's just a, a British doctor. Up on a glacier, they find a set of footprints. Shipton believed that they were, in quotes, very fresh, probably not more than 24 hours old. And he immediately then started taking photographs of them, including placing an ice axe next to them for scale. These images would become the most famous images of so-called Yeti footprints on Everest. So we have the main photograph, which is just one footprint. It's huge. The ice axe is next to it. It's got quite defined toes and it's quite a wide foot. Mm. And then you have images of just like long trails of footprints in the snow. Mm. Those are the famous ones. And we have those up on our website and we'll also have them on the Instagram. Shipton initially publishes his written account of the footprints in The Times on December 6th, 1951, and the pictures themselves are printed the next day, completely covering the front page. Uh So these become a huge deal. When he actually gets off the plane back in Britain, he is, like, swamped by people trying to buy the, the photographs and asking him about them, and it's just, like, an immediate sensation. So what had previously been simply an exciting little mystery suddenly becomes this like huge scientific furore. So primatologist and paleoanthropologist John Napier, who used to be an expert on Homo habilis and also researched both Bigfoot and the Yeti, he wrote in a book on the subject that with the publication of Shipton's picture, sharp, undistorted and precisely exposed, the legend of the Yeti took a giant step forward and entered the public domain. So he's one of the most famous writers on the Yeti, and he, he marks this as the turning point in sort of Yeti history, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Ward, who's the uh, doctor on the expedition that I mentioned, he corroborated Shipton's photographs and the footprints that they saw. Shipton continued to maintain the truth of the prints for years, even while he was repeatedly accused of fabricating them. One such accusation I mentioned in the previous episode came from Ernst Schaefer himself, the Nazi zoologist who was... fine, we can just call him the Nazi. Yeah, (laughs) also accurate. Um, The guy who ran the Nazi expedition. And he, much later in life, wrote to Reinhold Messner, who I'll also mention later, saying that Shipton had faked the footprints and it had been essentially a publicity stunt to raise money for the next expedition to Everest in 53. Having seen the footprint, Mm -hmm. because I did Google the photo after we recorded last week's episode. Yeah. It truly does just look like a bear's footprint that's melted a bit. Like it, like that's really what it looks like. Mm. You know, like it, it just like it, like you can see where the claws would have been, and then it's like melted in. Right? Yeah, right. You know what I mean? I mean, I think the toes are quite rounded, though. They are, but like in the same way that like you know the snow would just melt like that. I feel. Yeah, I mean, people have analyzed it. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. Mm. But in my mind, it looks more like. Yeah, a footprint that's been tampered with, not a footprint that's oh, just melted reckon, that way. Because yeah, yeah. bare footprints, like their claws are so long that they tend to be quite sharp. Mm-hmm. Whereas like it's so rounded, like they're so human-like on the toes. And that's mm-hmm. why someone like Napier, a primatologist, got so interested in it and mm-hmm. ended up writing like a whole book about them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like he saw them when he was younger and it like spurred his fascination in primatology Mm. which is super interesting but after the this expedition happens multiple himalayan expeditions follow some with the specific aim of finding evidence of the yeti the nepalese government creates a yeti hunting permit amounting to 400 pounds per animal which in today's money is about ten thousand pounds or $18,000, Australian dollars. Um, Like, incredible. Good yeah. for them. <laughs> right? It's so smart. I mean, obviously you'd try and cash in on that. It's genius. Yeah. And they're still doing it with climbing permits to Everest. Oh, boy. Climbing permits to Everest is so expensive. I mean, as they should be. They really need to limit the number of people who are going up there. But, yeah, <laughs> it's just a different form of that. So John Hunt, who was the leader of the 1953 expedition... He even wrote about a conversation that they had on the expedition between an abbot at Tengbosh Monastery who described once seeing a yeti nearby in great detail. So even from what is one of the most famous Everest expeditions of all time, we have stories about yetis. Mm. There's also mention that maybe Hillary might have seen footprints, but John Hunt, despite writing about this conversation, he himself did not believe in the yeti and he was quite big on trying to suppress a lot of the talk around it because he was very serious about his very expensive expedition to Everest, which I guess good for them succeeded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like he d- he didn't do poorly for, for that. Yeah. And as, as I've mentioned to you off recording, one of the sort of fun facts about the 1953 expedition is that the news that Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary had reached the summit of Everest hit the world on the morning of Queen Elizabeth's coronation, which is just kind of funny. That's hilarious to me. Right? (laughs) I mean, there's on the one side, it was kind of like, oh, she can now be like, yes, look how great the British Empire is. We succeeded in doing this. But also it's 
I just find it funny that there was other big news that might have pushed her coronation aside a little bit. She probably would have preferred if it was like a week later. Yeah. And she could still be like, yes, the British Empire. Yeah. <laughs> but also my day is my day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have no, no strong affection for the Queen, but I would be curious to know what her opinion on that particular thing is. It would be really funny, actually, wouldn't it? She's now the longest reigning monarch in British history, and uh, there was a, a second headline the day that she was crowned, yep. <laughs> and it was that a, that a New Zealander and a Sherpa had reached the uh, the height of the tallest mountain in the world. Yep, incredible. Now we come to 1954, when the Daily Mail, reputable newspaper. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm glad to know that the Daily Mail has always been a rag. Yeah. They're a rag with a ton of money because they fund the Snowman Expedition. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this expedition, full of, I won't go into detail, but some pretty strange and untrustworthy individuals, including a zoologist who also claims to have seen Makole Mimbembe, which is a famous cryptid, which supposedly looks a bit like a, a Diplodocus or something like that. What? A Diplodocus, like a long-necked dinosaur, like a sauropod. I don't understand any of the words you're saying to me. <laughs> Brachiosaurus, but head is further down to the ground. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, not, obviously that's not what any of these are, but it's a cryptid that supposedly looks a bit like that and is supposed to be in the Congo River Basin and is just famous and he supposedly saw it. But, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust him. Is it a water-based one or is it a land-based? Land-based. Okay. Like, could have been standing in water, but it's supposed to be not like a plesiosaur, but an actual dinosaur. Yeah. So, like, you know, flat feet and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a tortoise, not a turtle situation. Exactly. A tortoise that stands in water sometimes. Yes. <laughs> and looks like a dinosaur. Yeah. So, this expedition by the Daily Mail, full of <laughs> some guys, <laughs> they find a Yeti scalp. Oh, of course they do. For sure. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They didn't pack that with them on the flight over. It's sort of, it's so it's a bit more complicated than that. They find this Yeti scalp in a monastery in Pangbosh village. So it's shown to them. They don't steal it, do they? Do they steal it? Anna, no. We haven't, not quite. We have an interesting story ahead of us, though. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, this is going to take some turns. So the expedition zoologist was convinced that the scalp and its hairs had come from an animal unknown to science. He has some of the hairs removed, which is fine, they don't take the actual scalp, but he takes some of the hairs and it's sent to one scientist who then says it can't have come from a bear or an ape, but he thinks possibly from the shoulder of a goat. So there's this theory that maybe it was like a goat's shoulder that the skin was then like wet and warped and stuff to make a kind of skull-like shape. It's quite a pointed skull, Mm. but... Stories were that Yeti had a pointed head. Mm -hmm. So it fits in with that sort of uh, story. Funnily, some of the hairs were also sent to Scotland Yard in London. And they took a little while to reply, but eventually sent back a telegram with, sorry, we do not know this man. Okay, uh, incredible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, like, fair to them. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Now we come to a Texan oil millionaire with... An incredible name. This man was named Tom Slick. Okay, that's hilarious. It's so good. He's, in fact, I think he's a, a oil millionaire heir. So the Slick family just has <laughs> has an oil fortune, which what? is hilarious. What's that thing? It's called 
Oh, um, when your nominative name... determinism. Yes. When you have a name that determines what you have to do with your life. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So Dr. Blood and that sort of thing. Hannibal yeah. the Cannibal. Yes, yes, yes. My previous dentist, Dr. Fang. Yes, <laughs> Just... yes, yes. And Mr. Slick, the oil millionaire. Yeah. So Mr. Slick uses his money well by funding multiple Yeti expeditions from 1957 onwards. In 1959... They followed rumours about a Yeti hand kept at the same monastery that had held the scalp. So they hear about this previously and they're like, we have to, we have to investigate this. Mm-hmm. Slick, along with a primatologist named Professor Osmond Hill, asked an expedition member named Peter Byrne to go to the monastery and ask for the hand. They tell him if he's refused the hand, then he has to secretly break off a finger from it and replace it with an old human one. And in the process of telling him this, they just produce a human finger and give it to him to take with him. I, I have some questions about the finger. Uh, yeah, he has said he was never told the origin of that finger. He has no idea where it came from. He oh. just took it and was like, okay. Yeah, Mr. Slick the Oil Millionaire definitely killed someone for that finger. <laughs> That or he just like had someone rob a grave, I guess. I feel like he was just like, I have many options, but I'm going to choose the murder route because I am an oil millionaire. It should be said that the finger was like old, like was made or at least made to have been, I guess, dried out or something. That's gross, Anna. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) It's relevant because the the hand is very old and it has to kind of meld with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. He's, anyway, so Peter Burns given this old finger. Wait, do they plan on having him like stitch it on or just like lay it on the cushion and be like, yeah, it broke off. Whoops. Just kind of like wire it on. Like the, I guess the idea is that the hand is kept in an area that is, there's often a lot of um, handles and things there. It's quite dark. People don't tend to touch it a lot because it's kind of precious. Yeah. So he can just sort of like, I don't want to go into the specifics. Maybe have a bit of wire in the finger. Stick it on. Stick it in. Yeah. Sure. Sure. That's 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 50s science for you, I guess. Yep, it is. Now, Peter Byrne, he goes on the 1959 expedition and he does this. He goes to Pangbosh village. He goes to the monastery. He asks for the hand. They say no. He makes the swap surreptitiously. And now he just has this supposed Yeti finger. Now, he's concerned, or at least Slick had previously been concerned, that it would be discovered when Byrne tried to send it back to London. So Slick organises for it to be transported. What he does is he goes to some actor friends of his who were travelling in India at the time. These actors are James Stewart and his wife, Gloria Stewart. I don't know if you recognise the name, but James Stewart is really famous for starring in multiple Hitchcock films, namely Rear Window. Vertigo and Rope. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so famed actors. Like, real, like James Stewart is the guy in, in Rear Window. Like, I yeah. like James Stewart. He's a very good actor. This is, I when I was doing the research for this, I did not expect this. <laughs> did not expect him to turn up. Did not realize that Slick was connected to him. I guess it's he's rich. It makes sense. But somehow, famous Hitchcock guy comes into the story now. Mm-hmm. And by this point, he's already made, like, a bunch of these famous movies. Like, he's very well known. Gloria, his wife, hides the finger in her lingerie case for the journey. I don't want to think what she's expecting to do with her lingerie after the fact. I hope she threw it all out. Yeah. Well, 
Upon arriving in London, the case is missing. Who stole the case? This, we don't know, because it stays missing for a couple days, and then suddenly it's sent back to her by a customs officer. But he assures her that British customs would never open a lady's lingerie case. So they have somehow either messed up and just kept it somewhere by accident or kept it with a bunch of their stuff or something. But whatever happened... Is the finger missing? No, the finger is there. The lingerie case is intact. They've truly not touched it. The finger is there. No, because if they'd opened it and found a finger, they'd probably be like, what the f*** is this? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The finger is then sent to Professor Osmond Hill, who helped Slick organise this whole thing. And it's somehow lost. It, at that point, it is just gone. Wait, it gets sent to Hill and then disappears. It's just forgotten. And it doesn't turn up again until it's in a museum collection in 2008 where someone finds it in the collection. Clearly, his stuff had been donated somewhere, changed hands, somehow ended up here because he's just had a collection of things. And it's tested in 2008 and they found it to be like a regular human finger. Yeah, checks out. Yeah, so the Yeti hand, so-called, that was in the monastery was just a human hand. But the rest of the hand was actually stolen from the monastery in the 1990s, so we have no idea where it is now. I, there are so many twists. (laughs) You know. (laughs) So many turns, and I just didn't expect any of them. (laughs) Did you think Hollywood actors would turn up? No, but that's what happened with the Nazis in the last episode. This is true. Did I expect some, like, light theft? Well, some some major theft. <laughs> I mean, it's... Shipping of, of fingers around the place. It's Europeans in non-European places. Of course, they're going to be stealing things. Theft yeah, will happen. It checks out. So Slick and Burn, right after they had shipped off the finger and everything... S- slick and Burn? Slick and Burn. A, a burning Slick, you might say? Yeah, you might. <laughs> what a pair. Yeah. So the two of them, they actually get caught up in Chinese accusations that the expeditions or the Yeti expeditions at the time in the late 50s were actually a front for attempts to free Tibet. So some people still believe to this day that they helped the current Dalai Lama when he escaped the 1959 Tibetan uprising. Is this like a substantive like claim? Like, is this legitimately a possibility? It or is, is it literally just them being like, oh, yeah, for sure we helped the uh, Dalai Lama uh, checks notes? Like... I think there it is a possibility because there was some American involvement around there. Slick was connected to certain people. I think there is some CIA connection there. But a lot of these mountaineering expeditions were often connected to all fronts for either colonial or like war related sort of efforts. I mean, mm. we know that the Nazis were scoping out the area when they were there also mm. looking for Yeti things. We know that the British were regularly scoping out the area as part of their colonial enterprise. So all of that is technically possible. Mm. But that happens in 59 when they have the Tibetan uprising. Slick actually dies not long after. So he dies in 1962, which is maybe part of the reason why he never follows up the thing with the, the finger yeah. because he, he doesn't um, live much longer. And he actually dies when he's flying a plane and it explodes in midair. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, he was definitely murdered, but I don't think it was in connection to this. I totally reckon it was something else. Oh, yeah. His life was crazy. I mean, I guess it just is when you're a Texan oil millionaire and you have that money and do whatever you want. Yeah. But his... Yeah. That's so wild. (laughs) I die. Jesus. I know. Bonkers. We keep getting introduced to these people who, like, do something insane and then die or just disappear. There's just so many twists and turns. 
Next, though, we're going to come to someone we know and someone we like. Hey. So now we come to Edmund Hillary. Hey. Sweet Kiwi guy who climbed Everest. So after Hillary successfully summits Everest in 1953, he then becomes a household name, of course. He continues climbing other Himalayan peaks in the years that followed. And then in 1958, he takes part in the Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition, which was the first expedition to reach the South Pole overland since Amundsen and Scott. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he did this with motor vehicles. So they obviously attempted to do that a little bit with Scott and it had failed miserably. But this is the first expedition to do it. And We've had quite succeed. a few years of, of development since then. Exactly. A, a ton of time. Um, but it's just really, I just thought that's cool. Like, it's not really relevant, but it's it's really interesting that Edmund Hillary did all these interesting things right yeah. after uh, Everest. I think you should also just give people, like, a bit of a rundown of, like, why you like Hillary. Because I think uh, that, yes. obviously, like, uh, uh, most people know him as the man who, you know, summited Everest with, with Tenzin Norgay. But, like, I I had always just assumed he was just another random mountaineering guy who just, like, happened to be the first, right? But yeah. you've, you've, you've definitely enlightened me on that front. Yeah, I, I think Edmund Hillary just, I mean, the whole story of someone who comes from quite a working class background and goes on to climb Everest from, you know, it's he's not like a lot of the, like, gentlemen mountaineers from yeah. particularly the 20s and 30s who kind of had nothing else to do because they were lords or had whatever money from their family. So what they did with their time was they climbed mountains, mm. right? But Edmund Hillary just was a guy who enjoyed it and was so good that he got involved with this expedition. What was his profession outside of mountaineering? So Edmund Hillary's job was a beekeeper, an apiarist. So he was just kind of a wholesome guy. Uh, he did that with his, his father and his brother. And he got involved with mountaineering at university and a lot of hiking and stuff that just sort of like went on from there. What was essentially just a hobby became more and more significant. And he had some like significant climbs of his own in the 30s in New Zealand. And then during World War II, like a lot of young men, he joins the Royal New Zealand Air Force. So he becomes involved with the war effort. And then it's after that that he starts to actually go on some more significant climbs. And of course, in the 50s, gets involved with the British Reconnaissance Expedition and then the actual expedition to Everest in 53. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he just, like, was a sort of wholesome guy. And he was famous for being very, like, humble and all the accounts of him at the the time of summiting, but also since then were of him being very, like, unassuming and just, like, a pleasant person. Mm. And he dedicated the rest of his life, and this is what I really like about him because I've, I've read a lot about this, he dedicated the rest of his life to a lot of philanthropy, particularly focusing on, like, Nepali communities. So he poured a lot of money into people living in the area, particularly Sherpa communities, one of the major things that he did in Nepal was that he established a nonprofit called the Himalayan Trust in 1960, and then he actually ran it until his death in 2008. And that trust led to the construction of multiple schools and hospitals in remote Sherpa villages. So he poured like a lot of yeah of the rest of his time and life into this kind of work. And when Tenzing Norgay died, which was a couple several years before Hillary himself, he like gave a speech at his at his funeral and. Was, you know, he, he was one of the major people to speak out about Tenzing's achievements and how important he was, whereas, you know, at the time in 1953, people were kind of like, oh, well, the important part of this is that Edmund Hillary summited Everest. We're not going to talk about, you know, the Sherpa who was with him. Yeah, yeah. The, the name in question is important. They're like, oh, this is definitely, this is a European name that we can plaster all over our newspapers and our achievements. Exactly. And it's a British expedition, so we're going to focus on that side, the Commonwealth uh, members of the expedition and not 
the Sherpas, whereas Edmund Hillary was like, nope. He was my buddy Tenzing. He did really good. Yeah. So yeah, he was just he was just a nice man. And I think his personality kind of flies in the face of a lot of mountaineering, particularly later, where it was just very like a lot of machismo and people just trying to prove that they were so like strong and uh, capable and could conquer the world kind of thing. It's just nice that the man who like climbed the highest mountain in the world or one of the two men who climbed the highest mountain in the world was just kind of a beekeeper from New Zealand. Mm. It's nice. It is nice. Yeah. It's honestly like is one of those things where it's, it's it's unfortunate that it's an exception, but it's nice to just be like, oh, this this person that achieved this thing, you know, with his friend, like they really just like were vibing. Yeah. <laughs> like it was like a difficult obviously it was extremely difficult, but it's just like fascinating to me. Yeah, to me. absolutely. And as I said, he does have several other achievements afterwards. So he summits other mountains in the Himalayas, which are obviously all of them are really tall, so it's pretty impressive. Mm. He, as I said, has an expedition in Antarctica. And then in 1960 to 1961, he returns to the Himalayas on what's called the Silver Hut Expedition, which Hillary organised with British climber Griffith Pugh. So the aims of this expedition were twofold. To test human abilities to live and climb at high altitude without supplemental oxygen. So they would spend time actually living or staying at certain levels to see how much that they could sort of withstand physically. And the other aim was to search for the Yeti. (laughs) Was the Yeti thing just to drum up interest or were they actually... They were serious about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, again, another thing I like about Hillary is that he is extremely thorough and scientific in the way he goes about it. He's like, this is what I'm being partly paid for. This is part of the reason why we're here. Yes, we'll obviously be very thorough in the way we deal with the other part of the expedition, but we will search for this Yeti. So he'd seen strange footprints on the 53 expedition and he was at this time open to the idea of a Yeti. As we remember, he was also on the 51 expedition when Chipton had taken photographs. So he's been involved in a lot of mm. Yeti-related things so far. His team tested the, the Pangbosch scalp, which was the one I mentioned earlier, found by the or seen by the Daily Mail expedition. Mm-hmm. And they were allowed to see the hand, which at this time they didn't know had already been tampered with. So they just saw a, a hand. They had no idea that one of the fingers was taken and replaced. They were also shown Yeti pelts, which turned out just to be pelts of brown bears. But they also obviously looked at them, analysed them, took a bit of time to work this out and then came to that conclusion. Hillary's comments in the end were, The Yeti is not a strange superhuman creature as has been imagined. We have found rational explanations for most Yeti phenomena. He went on to then say that the Yeti was a fascinating fairy tale, born of the rare and frightening view of animals, moulded by superstition, and enthusiastically nurtured by Western expedition. So he's seen all the evidence. They've mostly worked out kind of like animal or other explanations for all of them. Mm. And he at least recognises that this idea has been nurtured as he said, by Westerners, Mm. but does come from some belief systems of people in the area. Mm. He is interviewed later in life and supposedly he debunked or admitted that Shipton's photographs were fake. Mm. So he said that Shipton was a joker and that he had loved to wind people up that way. And everyone had supposedly been in on the joke on the expedition and Shipton had just been like allowed to run away with it and none of them had said anything. Yeah. So he'd sent off the pictures 
the newspaper unaware that they were basically getting the piss taken out of them. Yeah. Well, like, front page news! <laughs> Bam! Yeti photograph! <laughs> and at this point, like, Shipton hadn't said anything. I don't think Shipton ever admitted that they were fake himself. He kind of had to just double down on it after a little while. I feel like, I mean, he would have lost just every shred of credibility he had. Exactly. And especially after losing out on leading the 53 expedition, he's just kind of like... Um, actually, stuff all of you. They're real and I'm out. <laughs> Do you think there was the possibility that if others had known in the mountaineering community and on that expedition had known that he had faked that photo, that that was possibly one of the reasons that he lost out on leading and, and on taking that final climb to, the, to Mount Everest if they had basically looked at him and been like, well, like, you're not very honourable, are you? Because you lied about this thing. No, I would say unlikely, just on the basis that people who made that decision weren't people who were on, involved oh, yes, in the totally expedition not, at not all. Relevant. Yeah, okay. yeah, and and they, they had their reasons regarding, as I said earlier, the fact that he preferred smaller expeditions and they were leading a very big, expensive one, so mm. they maybe didn't believe that his he had the ability to organise an expedition of this type. And there's just a lot of politics involved in these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah extremely fair. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, yeah, as to what his reputation was like within the mountaineering community. If and and a few big names had known or believed at least that he had faked the photo. I think what we've kind of seen a lot is that a lot of Westerners, like Tillman and Chipton themselves, will often kind of get involved in Yeti stuff jokingly and not take it very seriously and not care what the press says, frankly. Because a lot of the time the press fabricated things themselves. Mm. And these are just like some guys who are climbing and having their own fun. Mm. So I don't, I honestly don't think people saw that and thought of it as dishonorable. They probably just thought it was funny. Because he didn't, even though he lost out on leading the expedition, he was still remained super respected. And like personally, I, I think what he achieved just as a mountaineer is pretty exceptional regardless. Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, it is a little funny that he... <laughs> oh, extremely funny to me. It's yeah. even funny to me that the newspaper was just like, fact, bam. <laughs> yeah, and should be said, those photos sold for thousands at auction. Yeah. So bad. he made bank. Yeah. Which is like... That's pretty funny. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fleesome, Shepton. Now that Hillary had sort of laid to rest the... Yeti a little bit. The Western fascination with it eases in the 1970s, but footprints and sightings of the Yeti do continue into this period. So the one last person we're going to explore is an Italian mountaineer that I mentioned earlier in the last episode named Reinhold Messner, who, as mentioned, was sent a letter by Ernst Schaefer claiming that Shipton had faked the footprints. Many people now just who are interested in mountaineering would agree that Messner is probably the most accomplished mountaineer living today. Oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. So his achievements include the first solo ascent of Everest. So first person to climb it alone. First person to ascend Everest without supplemental oxygen, which he did. Oh, yeah. Which he did with someone else named Peter Habeler in 1978. So the two of them, first men to ever reach Everest without oxygen or without extra oxygen. He's the first person to climb all 14 peaks above 8,000 metres in the world. And he was the first person to do so without oxygen. Oh, my God. Yeah. This guy must have, like, beastie lungs. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. He's also the first person to cross Antarctica without dogs or motors, and he did that entirely on skis. What the f***? Yeah. I need to see a picture of this guy. Is he, like, a beast? (laughs) 
just love the idea that <laughs> some people are just like, like ride with Mesna in pants. The beast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, he's. What? How do you spell his last name? M E S S N E R. Oh, he does look like a beast, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he looks exactly like the kind of guy that can do all of those things. His hair is so powerful. Yes. I absolutely. love looking at pictures of him because it's just like. Swo- it's massive it's swooping and like big beard it's exactly what you'd expect yes. yeah this guy's wild he's italian but comes from a german background as you can kind of guess from his name and a lot of his books have been written in german so mesner for years after hearing all of these yeti stories he just believes it's in his words bullshit <laughs> <laughs> but in 1986 mesner sees something that he can't explain so while he's trekking in Tibet alone in a quite a, not like a, a up in the mountains, but in an area that's still at sort of relatively high elevation. It's the Himalayas, so it's all higher. <laughs> yeah. So the following sighting occurs, and I'm going to now quote him. Silently as a ghost, something large and dark stepped into a space 30 feet ahead among the rhododendron bushes. A yak, I thought, and the thing stood still. Then, noiseless and light-footed, it raced across the forest floor, disappearing, reappearing, picking up speed. This was not a yak. The fast-moving silhouette dashed behind the curtain of leaves and branches, only to step out into a clearing some ten yards away for a few seconds. It was as if my own shadow had been projected onto the thicket. He then finds a huge footprint just nearby, which unnerves him. According to his book, the creature then returned later that night. To quote again, I suddenly heard an eerie sound, a whistling noise, similar to the warning call that mountain goats make. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the outline of an upright figure dart between the trees to the edge of the clearing. It stopped for a moment and turned to look straight at me. Again, I heard the whistle, more of an angry hiss, and for a heartbeat, I saw eyes and teeth. Covered with hair, it stood upright, on two short legs and had powerful arms that hung down almost to its knees. I guessed it to be over seven feet tall. Its body looked much heavier than that of a man of that size, but it moved with such agility and power towards the edge of the escarpment that I was both startled and relieved. Mostly, I was stunned. No human would have been able to run like that in the middle of the night. Do you think he was suffering from oxygen deprivation? (laughs) I I don't think he was high enough in altitude. (laughs) Because this is a, you know, down by rivers and rhododendron bushes and stuff. This is a bit more like... A hike, really. Yeah. It's just so interesting to me that he's gone from essentially being like, no, 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 yetis aren't real, to being like, well, I have a perfect description of an encounter with one. Yeah. This is such an interesting, such an interesting occurrence because, yeah, he was very clear that he thought it was crap for years and years. And he is an exceptionally accomplished man and an exceptionally practical one. Like you can't do what he did without just being smart and sort of critical and not having like just quite no fuss, you know, like you're just going to do what you want to do. Yeah. You don't have time for this stuff. Maybe he was building up credibility. (laughs) (laughs) What follows now is obviously his sighting is is mocked in the Western media, Mm. but he is so confused and so insistent on working out what happened that he then pursues the Yeti for 14 years, resulting in a book called My Quest for the Yeti, which is where those quotes are from. Yeah. He travels through the Himalayas 
He travels through South and Central Asia. He covers a huge amount of ground, talks to loads of different people, records various regional legends and, and names for creatures that are similar to the Yeti. In a monastery in Bhutan, he found a supposed Yeti pelt, which he then discovered had been made up of various human and animal body parts. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, it's not nice. It's quite an unpleasant description. But he's kind of doing what Hillary does. So he goes to these places. He spends a lot of time looking at proofs, supposedly, of he's, the Yeti. Yeah, And then analyzes thorough. them. Yeah, super yeah. thorough. And, like, 14 years. He's, he's the kind of man that, like... He saw this and he didn't immediately think, well, everyone's correct. He thought, I have to work out what on earth is going on here. Because, yeah. yes, this is too similar to the Yeti to make any sense. And, mm. yeah, it, it did make him question, obviously, what he'd been, been believing all this time. So he's mm. not easily taken in by it. He just sees this thing and has to find an explanation. Mm. He also follows paths to lairs of yeti-like creatures and found several times that they were bear dens. So essentially he spends all this time following lots of little trails, as said, talking to so many different people. And in the end, after all of this research and, you know, throughout that whole book, he just sort of concludes that the Western idea of the yeti doesn't exist. It can't exist. He doesn't understand what he saw, but he knows that this it is just not real. He says most explanations for evidence and stories lead back to bears. So he basically relies on the the bear explanation. Mm. Obviously, it doesn't fit what he'd seen himself, but I guess he's just trying to maybe explain to himself in his head, maybe, as you said, he was exhausted or something went on there. Mm. Crucially, he recognises that local folklore surrounding the idea of the Yeti is in itself significant and therefore real in its own way. So as he says... For us in the West, it was important for me to show that this wasn't some tall tale. The Yeti, you see, is a monster created in the people's heads from the reality. I am sure that the Yeti will never die. So it's kind of nice to see what is the f maybe the final major exploration of the Yeti by an, a mountaineer. It kind of comes to the logical conclusion, which is that, yeah, the Western idea of the Yeti isn't a real thing but we can't discount the importance of this to local people and their belief systems and therefore what they believe in is real in its own way as separate from a western concept of it. Hmm. I'm 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 yeah, totally totally like yes on all of that. Mm -hmm. Um I'm I just a little bit stuck on the fact that he was traipsing around the Himalayas alone. <laughs> like <laughs> My guy. This what? dude just did stuff like that. He's wild. He climbed Everest solo. Yeah. It's just bonkers to me. He just likes the peace and quiet, I guess. Yeah, I guess. He is yeah, just a wild individual. But very interesting. And his book, though sometimes a bit poorly translated, is worth checking out. It's quite a fun read. Th those quotes I took from it, they're translated by Graham Hoyland, the mountaineer I mentioned in the previous episode, and they're the quotes that he uses in his own book. Um, because, yeah, the... Some of the translations are a little bit iffy because it was originally written in German. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe Messner translated it himself, which is why it's not the best. Mm -hmm. But it is very interesting. That mm -hmm. sort of concludes our story of mountaineering history and the Yeti because anything further than that is mostly just cryptozoologists and conspiracy theorists today mm -hmm. who still believe in it or they're 
versions of the Yeti elsewhere, like in the Dyatlov Pass incident episode, we talked about the fact that there were jokes about a Russian Yeti. And of course, we haven't touched on Bigfoot in the US, but there's a lot of connections and similarities there as well. But as far as Yeti sightings go, that this is the last major one. And as with most of the sightings that we've had, they're usually discounted by whoever writes them or that that person is usually just like thinks it's a bear, something like that. Mm. That particular region is in so many ways like deep parts of, you know, the Amazon rainforest and things like that where we just like haven't gone mm-hmm. and like we don't persist in like it's not a place that we have like, you know, taken over, so to speak, as humans. Mm-hmm. So like... I mean, we're finding new moths and lizards and stuff all the time in, in the rainforests. Like, I obviously, like, a, a whole humanoid seems like something that's hard to miss. But yeah. it's very interesting to me that, like, I mean, it's very interesting to me that, like, the most credible person in of all of the people that you have given, the most, the person that I find most credible, which was obviously Mesner, mm. he was, his conclusion himself was like, yeah, I saw this thing, which I would have called a Yeti. Mm. But it's like I'm. My conclusion is it's still a bear. Yeah. Like not what I saw. I don't know what that was. But my conclusion <laughs> is what everyone else has been dealing with is still a bear. Yeah, like, essentially. <laughs> and kind of like what you just said. I mean, we had that uh, quote from David Attenborough at the start of episode one, where not long ago I think this was what twenty twelve or something like that. Sorry, twenty thirteen. He said that there's just so many vast swathes of rhododendron forests in the Himalayas and and the surrounding area that just people don't penetrate and go into that sure something could live in there and it could be something that's unknown to science and yeah he seems to sort of believe it I as you said don't think that something that large could still exist today and not have been seen I think it's highly unlikely Mm. but it is very interesting that I guess something about the environment, the high altitude, the low visibility, it means that bears or other things are repeatedly being sighted and people believe that this is what they're actually seeing. Or, you know, once you are within a belief system that has space for a Yeti or something like it, it's easier to see it and find explanations that or find things that you then explain with that belief mm. system, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's a wild and very twisty and turny history and very odd, but... <laughs> <laughs> odd is certainly the word. Yeah. I, it is like a case where I truly came into this knowing absolutely nothing. I, I lumped the Yeti in the same boat with Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and Mothman. You know, to my mind, they were, they were all the same sort of wacky thing. Mm-hmm. But it's very fascinating to me that, yeah, there's obviously so much more to this particular tale. It's not just, like, people lying to each other about seeing something. It's actually, like, hundreds of years of cultural buildup belief, and creation yeah. and belief mm-hmm. and history and, and like, record mm-hmm. that's been sort of spotted by <laughs> Europeans traipsing around the area and they've gone like, oh, a Yeti! <laughs> yeah. And I think that is what kind of distinguishes it a bit from other, like, famous cryptids like you listed. I mean, I don't think there's any historical basis for the Loch Ness Monster. It's just the photo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's I think there's some tale from a Irish monk from, like, several hundred years ago of a creature that could be that, but also that's just what all dragons sound like. <laughs> 
So <laughs> I won't, this is not a Loch Ness Monster episode. I won't go into that. But obviously that's, yeah, it's not quite the same. Bigfoot is more similar to the Yeti in that there are Native American beliefs that involve a creature, a sort of Sasquatch-like creature. Mm. But again, that's been so morphed and warped and changed over time. Mm. And I think is slightly less integral to a lot of the sightings that people have had as Mm. Uh, as compared to the Yeti and mountaineering, because there's always Sherpa people involved and they're around and it's very tied with actual people who live in the space, whereas Bigfoot is kind of like, we heard of this thing, now we saw a Bigfoot uh, print in the ground and we're going to apply it to that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting as cryptids go. And I just like the excuse to talk about mountaineering history because I find Himalayan and Everest mountaineering very interesting. (laughs) It certainly was. It absolutely was. God, what a wild time. <laughs> oh, um, you know, a fun fact. This is not super related, but I enjoy it. Uh, actor Brian Blessed, who's obviously very famous and well-loved. One of the famous things that he did on the side of acting is that he climbed Everest, which he's quite a, like, like a very large man is kind of known for not always being the healthiest. It was a very big deal that he did that and he got like worked really hard to get really healthy for it. And obviously it's not an easy thing to do. And he had a expedition documentary team with him, including Graham Hoyland, who wrote the the book that I've based a lot of this research on. Hmm. And apparently a lot of their local guides referred to him as, like, Yeti. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Because <laughs> he's just, like, this big, hairy guy, massive beard, like, very yeah. jovial, yeah. Uh, a little bit ridiculous. But, yeah. yeah, it's just a fun fact that, like... That's so fun. Even to this day, in the last few decades, like, there's elements of yeti stuff talked about it's a bit more tongue-in-cheek now and obviously a lot of the mystery and excitement of everest mountaineering is gone because of the fact that uh, commercial everest mountaineering means that like hundreds of people go up all the time and just (laughs) there's so many people in the area yeah yeah so i mean but even yeah obviously as we say like with all those people in the area, there's still so much of that area that is still left yeah. you know, unexplored by Western interests. Yeah, not say. maybe so much around Everest, but other parts of the Himalayas. Yeah. Exactly. So the Everest itself is just kind of that mountain now. It's kind of like the Australian desert, right? It's like Australia is huge, but most of it is desert. Like there's yeah. so much of it that we haven't been in. Yeah, the Himalayas are massive. And there's so many mountains there. It's not mm. even people just climbing Everest. Like there's a bunch of others too. But there's all that vast rhododendron forest that's just there that people don't really spend a lot of time in. So it's it's an interesting place. Mm. I would love to visit base camp in Everest one day, but I don't know if that will ever happen. It's hard to do. Brian Blessed did it. I reckon you could probably. <laughs> if Brian did it, um, we don't have to include this. I was just fun no, fact. no. I'd I like think to that's do that like a nice. Day. Yeah, that's that's extremely valid. Like, yeah, I wouldn't climb Everest because um, I physically can't <laughs> with my tiny lungs. Uh, but also, I, as I I've said to you off recording, I'm not a huge fan of commercial mountaineering and the impact that it's had on the on the area and yeah, the we've already seen like multiple m- major incidences. That have resulted from the fact that so many people are up there and shouldn't be or stuff about, you know, how Sherpas are treated and their rights and things. And or I should say just guides generally, because mm. obviously they're not all Sherpas. So, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of uh, interesting sort of debate there, which actually I should mention if anyone's interested in reading up on it and following that a bit, as opposed to Yeti stuff, just understanding the current situation on Everest. It's worth watching a documentary called Sherpa which is made by Australian filmmaker Jennifer Pedham. And it's 
really interesting and it covers the the 2014 uh, Everest ice avalanche because they were actually filming it at the time. They obviously didn't expect the avalanche to happen, but that was the single deadliest day in Everest history when 16 Sherpas were killed. We mentioned that in the previous episode, but the, the documentary is fantastic. Mm. It used to be on Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is, but it is on other streaming services. So people should check it out. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Absolutely. Also read... If you just want to know about Everest mountaineering in the like up to the nineties when it was still at its sort of still very commercialized, read Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, which is one of my favorite books ever. And he basically was also present for well, he was originally just gonna write an article about why commercial mountaineering has issues, and then he was there for probably the second deadliest incident in Everest mountaineering when the man who led his expedition amongst other people all died. Because it was a really bad well, several things happened. I won't go into details, but it's a very interesting book. It was also made into the movie Everest, which is worth watching. It's a whole bit depressing. <laughs> it might be. Yeah, it is a bit depressing because for me, like, there is no, uh, like, certainly I think what, like, what Norgi and, and Hillary did was cool in the sense that, like, mm. yeah, you've got a big mountain. Someone's going to be at the top. That's fun. It's like going to the moon, right? It's like, well, it's, there's no point to it. Like, yeah. But it's cool yeah but i i think that there's like post that point there's no silver lining for me right it's just like this is not i understand the desire for the achievement for people who for whom mountaineering is like a key part of their life and their hobbies and things like that Mm -hmm. but it's just like it's not getting anything right you know it's like it's only costing things yeah and it costs a ton yeah, it costs lives and it costs, you know, livelihoods and so much money. The money doesn't necessarily go it well doesn't generally go to the actual people who live in the areas oh, and yeah. need it like So yeah, it's just like there's no like oh that's there's like oh but there's this good thing. It's just like all not good. <laughs> yeah, at this point this is kind of why I'm so interested in mountaineering history from about the 20s to the 50s when people are trying to do it. Obviously, it's I'm you got to be extremely critical of it too because a lot of it is just colonial yeah it is generally british people in south asia and in in the himalayas just kind of doing whatever they want and there's a lot of racism involved and it's very messed up but it is interesting in its own way like why do people do that it's Mm. why polar exploration is interesting Mm. people will put themselves through extreme hardship and go to insane lengths to do this these wild things but at least at that point it hadn't been done yet at this point yeah so many people have climbed everest i mean it's not the hugest number, I think it's a couple hundred who go up a year. Not everyone makes it, but something like 7,000 summits in total. That's the thing that I'm getting, that's that's kind of getting me a little bit, right? Because it's like, there is actually no benefit. Yeah. like You can put it on your CV, I guess. So, not even that, because if you're rich enough to do that, then you probably don't have a CV. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, also true. You know, it's just like, oh, like. Cool. Like, yeah, cool, good cool, for you, I guess. cool. Like, good for you. Like, yeah, that's that's exciting for your lifetime and your achievement. But like, you didn't help anyone, and yeah. it didn't help you, and you didn't do anything. Like, it's not. Yeah, it's it's pretty messed up. Yeah, like I don't, I was I don't want to be too like harshly judgmental from that angle because like I don't have any passion for mountaineering, so I don't know. Maybe it's like a huge thing and like all of that, and obviously, it, but like I understand that it would be, but like there are mountains that people have said are more difficult. Or more interesting to climb. Don't Everest they say like Cal- just... K2 is supposed to be more difficult to climb? K2 is very difficult. I've heard. Yeah. yeah. But Everest is like technically the tallest. Yeah. Even though there's like 14 other, oh, sorry, 13 other peaks that are above 8,000 meters. So they're not all that 
sort of different, but it's the big one. I guess maybe it's like even like people aren't actually interested in the difficult climb. Like if you're climbing Everest, you're not doing it because it's the hardest mountain. You're doing it because it's the tallest. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because all of the ones about, above 8,000 are going to encounter the same death zone and their low oxygen and all those problems. Mm. Yeah, which is what makes Everest so hard. Also with even less support. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, people aren't paying attention to it. Yeah. And, this, yeah, it's so commercialised on Everest. So everything is sort of, like, worked out. And this is why a lot of people who climb it uh, really shouldn't because they're not accomplished mountaineers or they're only, like, a little – like, they've done a bit of mountaineering. But they're just a lot of, like, rich people who are led on an expedition by a professional who their whole job and all the guides on their job – are there to get these rich people up to the top. Like, that's what they do. Yeah. So they're, like, kind of being taken up at even if... Yeah, yeah. You know, that's it exactly, isn't it? It's... it's. You're part yeah. of a tour group, but you go through these insane physical endurance things for some reason. Like, yeah. why? <laughs> Purely because you can afford the fees. Yeah, which, like, it, it costs tens of, tens of thousands of dollars to climb Everest one time. Yeah. It's crazy. And there's a not insubstantial chance that you will die. What did you say, like 320 people? I think just over 300 people have, have died. Have died on Everest. Exactly. It's since the 20s. Oh boy. Well, that all being said, <laughs> I mentioned a couple books and uh, documentaries that people can watch if they're just interested in Everest mountaineering and the issues with it now. Mm. But I'll also just give a rundown quickly of my sources because there's some really fun books in there which are more focused on Yeti history and general mountaineering history, and they're well worth a read. So I've mentioned Mr. Graham Hoyland a bunch of times because his book Yeti and Abominable History is one of my favourite books in mountaineering. It's super fun. And it was the one that was featured in the Instagram posts for our first episode. He also wrote a book on Mallory and Irvin, which is called Last Hours on Everest. And it's also excellent and really interesting. And as I said, maybe we'll do an episode on Mallory and Irvin one day because that's a fascinating expedition. Other than that, there's also a book by a fellow named Brian Sykes called Bigfoot Yeti and the Last Neanderthal, A Geneticist's Search for Modern Ape Man. And Reinhold Messner, of course, wrote My Quest for the Yeti. Uh, Edmund Hillary's written a couple books of his own expeditions on Everest, one called High Adventure, one called High in the Thin Cold Air. And then Eric Shipman wrote a book on the Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition, which is, like, pretty fun and pretty thorough. There's a lot of accounts of all these expeditions. So if there's one that piques anyone's interest, you can, like, Google it and Google the name of the person who led the expedition and be pretty sure they wrote a book on it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a trend. Absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, this is one of our weird episodes where we can't really do Mayday Moments because we're just talking about a huge amount of expeditions and a whole lot of people. And Mayday ranking is not really relevant either because I guess we have deaths on Everest, but again, there's no specific expedition that we're mm. comparing them to. That all being said, some crazy stuff has happened on that mountain. You're not wrong. <laughs> um, I think, personally, that we should cheers to our buddy... Uh, furry pal, the Yeti. <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, Reinhold Mesner. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? A little bit him too. He was pretty cool. <laughs> to the, the Yeti. Yeti and Reinhold Mesner. <laughs> Here's my conspiracy theory. Uh, Mesner is a Yeti and this whole thing, like he was sent out 
by the Yetis to like try and get people off their track. <laughs> Sorry. He's he like, was... you need to go and disprove that we exist. He's saying he was secretly raised in Italy as a human being. Yes. <laughs> For, but his entire life was just training to eventually go on this Yeti quest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I think Yetis you're correct. Our master spies. <laughs> anyway, as I previously mentioned, the Yeti is real in my heart and he's my friend. Thank you for listening to the Mayday Podcast. If you would like to see some fake Yeti footprints, <laughs> you should uh, follow us on Instagram at the Mayday Pod. And thank you to our very own Yeti, Marlon Grundon <laughs> of MarlonGrundon.com, who is our composer and producer, and he does a great job. And he is real and he is our friend. Yeah. As mentioned previously, people can now rate podcasts on Spotify, so do give us some stars and also post a review on Apple Podcasts if you use that. Get ready for whatever I'm going to talk about next fortnight. (laughs) We're recording this episode slightly in advance, so we have not worked out what the next (laughs) topic will be. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to (laughs) be. I I gotta find something. Hey, if you have a suggestion. Yes, we are always open to suggestions for topics that people want to hear about we have got a couple potentially lined up for the future but please if you have anything in mind you can message us on any of our social medias so twitter instagram at the mayday pod or pop it on our website we have a little comment section on the front page yes we've got a couple of suggestions i might have a look at those and see if there's any that jump out at me yeah but otherwise it'll just be a surprise it's a mystery and we love those (laughs) thank you and good night Woo. (laughs) Ha <laughs>